Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn with Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how goes it today? It goes very well, Andrew. How goes it with you? It goes very well as well. We hope it goes very well for everybody else. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we push out into the investing universe. If you've been listening for some time, you know this. The best way to do that is to follow me on Twitter at, at Focus Compound. Uh, of course, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening or watching us. And if you're interested in learning about our money management services, uh, you can reach out to me at Andrew at FocusedCompounding.com. Of course, all the information is in the description below. So today is December 21st, 2023. Uh, this will be uh, the last podcast that we will record in, uh, that will be uploaded in 2023. So we are going to be doing a reflection podcast as we did last year on the year 2023. And if you can remember, Jeff, we did do a segment on predictions for uh -oh. 2023. Did you write them down? A little, I did. Yes, okay. I will say you, right. you sounded a lot better than I sounded. Right, that was oh, kind okay. of trolling around, having fun with it. But I did feel what I said, and we're going to talk about that. Did I say um, the Nasdaq will be up forty percent or whatever? You no. did not say that. However, okay. you were pretty. You left. You kind of hedged a little bit. I will say you were much more. You know, eh, it could happen, I, right? Um, yeah, I didn't listen again. My guess would be I said uh, it's unusual for the stock market to be down big two years in a row. And so that's the only cautiously not too bearish thing I probably said. Yeah, I mean, look, this is what you had said. You would, I mean, the main thing you had said was um, we could look back and say, oh, you know, stock's bottom and the Fed ultimately pivoted. Um, but your main uh, message was you're not seeing things that are like super overvalued anymore, right? Okay. So you were saying that you're seeing more things that are like interestingly valued than overvalued. Um, I had said, and I kind of joked that this was the famous last words, that uh, value would come back and that eventually if the Fed pivots and lowers interest rates, that the biggest losers will be retail investors because all these high flyers where you're partying with zero interest rates and whatever aren't going to come back into rotation. And obviously that was uh, incredibly wrong because the past couple of months, you've seen a lot of these high flyers start to take off again. And awesome. um, yeah, so, you know, that's kind of what I said, but you had said that there are some things that seem cheap to you. I mean, you even named a few different stocks, uh, uh -huh. Vera Bradley, <laughs> was one okay. that you had thought looked pretty cheap, um, irrespective of what happens in the market. You know, it's up 61%, not bad. You, oh, uh, that's not bad. The nah, business hasn't gone well, but the, it improved, yeah. Because yeah. people figured there won't be a recession, whereas when we recorded last time, they were sure there was about to be a recession. Yeah, you called out Greenbrick Partners, saying that you know you did, you thought it was pretty good value. You didn't think it was overval uh, overvalued. You thought that could be an interesting thing to look at. It's up over 100 uh, nine percent, not bad. Oh, this um, is good for our clients to listen to because we don't own Green Brick and Vera Bradley. Those no, we don't. Stocks. I don't. Out. Yeah, I've told you. I think actually Jeff could be a. What do you want to call it? Like a intelligent speculator. I mean, you know, Buffett in his personal account, he's always doing these different things that he wouldn't do for Berkshire. But every now and then, mm -hmm. you you bring up stuff on the pod where you're like, yeah, it could work out, and it and it some you know it does work out. Those are just well. very cheap. At the time, they're very cheap stocks with a lot of pessimism, but they're total macro things of why they were cheap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of you were talking about before where you uh, you were doing like a related hedge for Value Investors Club. You didn't invest in yeah. it yourself, but you had no. thought it's something that Value Investors Club would be interested in, just their style mm -hmm. of investing, and you did yeah, not no. get approved. But no. it was up like, I don't know, many multiples from it worked out just like yeah, exactly I how you thought it would work out. I thought it was a good idea. Short something that had ethanol in the name that everyone was speculating on and go along something that was ethanol, but wasn't called ethanol yet. And uh, yeah, but yeah, it worked yeah. out well because the long even has done well, but the short went to zero. So yeah, I mean, I remember we looked at that like three years ago or four years ago and it worked out yeah. perfectly well. So we could talk about 2023 a little bit. Uh, we can reflect on it. 
Um, uh, as of December 15th, JP Morgan, they, they did most of the work for us. They took all the big events that happened in 2023, and I thought we could uh, speak about it. Um, let's see right here. Uh, their top takeaways says stocks and bonds have soared this week after the Federal Reserve signaled rate hikes are over and cuts are coming. Heading into mm-hmm. Friday, the S&P 500 is less than 2% away from its all-time high last seen in January 2022. And the rally is broadening out from just big tech. And 10-year Treasury yields close back below 4% for the first time since July. Um, and they did a comparison of this time compared to last year. Last year, U.S. equities were down 18%. This year, we're up 24.5%. World equities down 17.7%. This year, 21.6%. Uh, performance of the 60-40 portfolio, U.S. high yield, cash, uh, commodities, et cetera. Um, so big difference on what a year can make. So to your point about it's very rare to have two large down years, um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously that, that worked out well. Uh, talked a little bit about the Fed being done hiking, uh, and, and it looks like, Interest rate cuts are next. We're currently at uh, five and a quarter to 5.5. But if you look at the treasury yield curve, as we spoke about recently, uh, they're projecting interest rate cuts. Um, uh, So we'll see what happens. I mean, this is looking like a soft landing, Jeff. I mean, we'll see what happens, right? If they over tighten, but so far. You know, they say about like, you know, the predicting nine of the last five recessions or whatever well i think soft landings it's like you know they've predicted like 11 of the last one soft landings or something it, it's pretty the record's pretty bad everyone always thinks there's gonna be a soft landing i mean 2008 yeah. they thought there'd be a soft landing i mean mm-hmm. you know uh, i always cite the um new york times article after the archduke franz ferdinand was assassinated that said at the end of the article you know and experts say this might be good for peace you know world war one started just after that so um yikes yeah yikes 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 um they said markets are moving quickly but we don't think you've missed it and then it hits on uh why they believe that inflation will likely settle price pressures are abating and the fed's own forecasts show a durable path toward its two percent inflation target do you agree with that um Yes, I, I agree with that in exactly the way that they put it. We could get into specifics about it later, but yes, all those things are true. But how much is like inflation still up compared to like 2022? I mean, that's just a year over year thing. Correct. And there's very little in the core things that matter to the Fed about the services stuff and all that. I've talked about sticky price inflation, depending on how you measure it, sticky prices whether we're talking about one month, three month, a year, we're like at three and a half to 4.3% or something. They're all cyclical things that have collapsed, right? So it's a benefit from things that are cyclical because the economy is not so great, which you can see if you ask people, how's the economy? They think it's terrible, um, households and stuff. So they feel that. Um, but that's how interest rates work. You know, we talked about that. Interest rates don't like mean that people are going to buy fewer pizzas and, st- and get fewer haircuts and stuff. It means that they're going to buy fewer cars and houses and not build out a deck and not buy, you know, uh, grills and not put in swimming pools and all that kind of stuff. That's what the Fed can really affect and affect, uh, affect in a really big way fast. And they have. Mm-hmm. Where I've noticed that the most in my personal life is just at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. I'm like constantly shocked by how expensive some things are at the grocery store. And I'm not even like shopping at Whole Foods. I mean, where I live, there's like a neighborhood Walmart and mm-hmm. even like, you know, syrup or sriracha, sriracha, like $16, $17, something crazy like that. Um, yeah, absolutely crazy. Well, we're talking about rates, not price levels. Like I said, since before COVID, yeah. depending on what thing you're talking about, price levels will be up 20 or 30% permanently. Just have to get used to that. They'll never go back down. Um, so... That's why old people talk like that and say it's outrageous that something costs, you know, $5 or something because they remember a time when that was the very high priced one. That was the best thing there is. And now the worst one costs that because you never get back purchasing power once you lose it. There's almost, you know, in the modern era, in the 1800s you did. But in the modern era, you don't have meaningful periods of deflation ever. So it never goes back the other way. Uh, Next, the cash conundrum with the Fed and other central banks now on the verge of cutting and potentially sooner rather than later. Once juicy yields on cash stand to fall and fast. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that? 
that's what the market's predicting, and it's even in the Fed's dot plot now. Mm-hmm. Uh, bonds are more competitive. This also means that now looks like the time to consider locking in still elevated bond yields. The opportunity cost against cash looks even greater after this week's central bank meetings, especially if we end up seeing more cuts than we expect. No, I think that's a terrible idea. I would not do that. Um, there's just high risks to doing that, and you're getting a yield on the bond. I mean, it's inverted. You're getting a yield on the bonds that are that are lower than you would in short-term stuff, and you're taking the risk that something doesn't work out the way you expect it longer term. So I, I don't think that's a smart idea. So what would you do instead of that? I think you should hold cash instead of going longer term like that. Um, mm-hmm. The rates they're talking about are like on the risk-free rates, three to 4% and stuff. And then, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't think that's a great idea, but. The stocks will likely march to new highs, a soft landing marked by moderate inflation, solid growth and easier policy spells for a sweet spot for stocks. If the data continues to turn out even better than we expect, valuations could have some more room to expand and earnings could even grow a bit above the trend-like pace we expect in our base case. I guess that's possible. I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, This is different from when we talked last year. Now they're pricing in a soft landing and saying if things come in even better than we expect. So I don't know. That's difficult. I just say it's it would be unprecedented. So it's not that mm-hmm. it can't happen based on the numbers, but you're you're betting on an unprecedentedly pleasant outcome. Um, so it might feel mm-hmm. like it for a year or something, but you know, um, it depends on exactly when you set the time periods for the cutoffs. So uh, yeah, it, it's mm-hmm. it'd be the best outcome that there's ever been historically if that's achieved. Mm-hmm. And then last one, contain credit stress. Avoiding a recession means that credit stress should be more limited to areas such as commercial real estate and select pockets of corporate debt. Nimble, experienced active managers could take advantage. Yeah, I disagree with that one entirely. I think there's strong signs that credit stress will be worse than historically experienced uh, given the same um, economic outcomes. We're already seeing that. Carmart has the highest charge-offs that they've had like ever, and there's unemployment at like nothing. Their model wouldn't allow for that being a possibility. Um, I just think that yeah, there's corporate things in the leveraged loans and stuff like that that are at risk. Um, yeah. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that one is probably... Bankruptcies are up. Yeah, they're just totally abnormal for this kind of economic environment. I know that the overall GDP and inflation things people are feeling good about, but when you ask households, when you look at bankruptcies, when you look at certain um, charge-offs in certain areas, they're extremely, extremely high for this sort of economic environment. So like trying to explain to people, oh, it's not really that bad. The macro data says this. Well, you wouldn't be charging things off and stuff if the macro data is reflecting the underlying situation. There's something else going on that's unpleasant for people and companies um, in terms of how tight they are, how close they are to um, the extent of what they can handle. So, yeah, Um, I, I expect that adjusted for whatever economic outcome we have, credit losses will be worse. So if we don't have a recession, I think you could see credit losses that look halfway between a recession and not a recession. If we have a recession, that's kind of mild. Credit losses could look more like a deeper recession, that kind of thing. They say looking at soft landings even more broadly, the S&P 500 typically rallies by roughly 15% on average in the 12 months after the first cut going back to 1965. And they have... uh, a chart right there. Okay. Um, something that was interesting was the events, major events that happened throughout the year. China ends its zero COVID policy. The U.S. government hits its legal $31.4 trillion debt limit. Uh, balloon gate, which I was thinking, I was like, balloon gate? Oh, yeah. Oh, is that when the, yeah, the, the Chinese balloon <laughs> yeah, thing was floating over yep. uh, in America? I was like, gosh, <laughs> that feels like it was so long ago. Kansas Chiefs uh, win the Super Bowl. Kansas City Chiefs when the Super Bowl Silvergate Bank voluntarily liquidates. Was that voluntarily, do you think? Yes. Yes. That was interesting because I saw something um, uh, where some people said, oh, this is really good because people had talked about like how bad, you know, all this crypto stuff was and whatever. And they're doing the right thing that they're they're doing this before they would have to shut down the bank and everything. So, yeah, technically that is true. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Silicon Valley Bank fails, 
and U.S. banks post their worst daily performance since 2020. Are you surprised that it was really contained to Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic? I mean, at least so far. Yeah, I mean, the stocks don't look that great. If you've been invested in bank stocks, you know that the multiples they're at and stuff are are not good versus what they were like before. And there's hasn't been total containment of like the effect it's had on earnings and stuff. But yes, um, they had a lot of capital and they had a lot of excess deposits. So we we always said that people always said that, that look, the banking system is not the part of the economy that's most at risk. Um, you know, same as like when we talked about 2008, uh, the, you know, the households are not unlike 2008 households and um, banks are not the things that are in trouble. Governments and businesses are the things that are much more at risk of feeling, you know, pain in terms of uh, credit stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Xi Jinping reelected as president of China for an unprecedented third term. Open mm-hmm. AI launches GPT-4. Taylor Swift kicks off her record-breaking Eras tour. Do you think that was a success? You're, that you're, was a you're, success, you're involved yeah. in media. Oh, yeah, oh you, you mean the, it a big success? Do you think it was a letdown? What? Uh, the the tour was a big success. Uh, the putting it out on um, in theaters is what we talked about, right? Yeah, I, I think we got pretty close. I don't know if it ended up around two hundred million, but we said, you know, I said it would be amazing if it tops two hundred million, even though everyone was saying it would. It opened. Yeah, I think like you're spot million, on with that. Yeah, yeah, but mm-hmm. we have data, so you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> I, if, you know, people get hyped up, but you can go back and look at, <laughs> you know, decades of data and see, oh, Michael Jackson only did this much. I don't know that Taylor Swift's gonna, you know, double that or something. Yeah, you were spot on with that. UBS buys Credit Suisse in a government-backed deal. Forgot about that. What a crazy year, huh? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost crazy in the sense of how, I hate to say it, but contained all of this stuff actually has been. And it yes. hasn't set off on like this global, you know, depression or whatever. Uh, LVMH becomes first European company to reach 500 billion market value. Okay. Congratulations. Uh, JP Morgan Chase takes over First Republic. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Uh, WHO ends COVID-19 declaration of a global health emergency. A coordination of Charles III and his wife, Camilla, as king and queen of the United Kingdom. NVIDIA blockbuster earnings report kicks off AI hype in earnest. That's true. U.S. government suspends the debt ceiling. Goodness. New York City covered in orange smoke from Canada wildfires. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was not just New York City, though. I mean, no. that was even Illinois. I mean, that was, that was mm-hmm. all throughout the country. Did you, yeah, that was not good. Uh, SP 500 marks 20% rally from its October 2022 lows. The U.S. May CPI report officially marks a halving in inflation. Well, okay. The Federal Reserve pauses its most aggressive rate hikes in decades. Uh, the Titan submersible implosion. That was very sad. Hottest global temperature ever recorded. Okay. The widely anticipated Barbie Heimer weekend kicks off. Mm-hmm. Did you see Barbie? I saw Barbie. I did not see Oppenheimer, unfortunately. Okay. So I saw Oppenheimer and I saw Barbie. Yeah. What'd you think of Barbie? I can see why it was the biggest movie of the year. Yeah. It had things going for it that if it had been made more as a standard movie, it wouldn't have been the same cultural experience. But I do have to say, you know, there are a lot of kids in the audience and there is a point where there's some speechifying and stuff where the kids were kind of like, Ami, why why are they just talking? Why don't we, you know, and running around the aisles and stuff. But it was made for everybody. So, you know, it it was Uh worked well that way. Uh huh. Uh, The Federal Reserve hikes interest rates for the final time in 2023. Fitch. Here's something that didn't get too much chatter. Fitch downgrades no. credit rating for the U.S. government from AAA to AA+. Mm-hmm. What did you think about that? Um, I mean, the U.S. is not AAA credit anymore. That's not news. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Not surprising. Yeah. Wildfires ignite on the Hawaiian island of Maui. Yeah. Haven't heard too much about that recently, other than when it was happening. Uh, yeah. U.S. CPI inflation reaccelerates for the first time in over a year. Chip designer arms IPO soar nearly 25% market debut, marking the largest IPO of the year. Didn't get too many uh, IPOs, though, in 2023. No, um, kind of started up at the end part here, and it's been mm-hmm. mostly 
the very hottest of like tech stuff, I think has been the ones that have gotten the most attention, right? Like if you're AI or something, you could definitely go public. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, crude oil prices rally almost 20% in a month to peak at $97 a barrel. McCarthy also as House Speaker. Okay, uh, we don't care about that. Uh, a 10-year U.S. Treasury yield hits 5%. An intraday trading for the first time since 2007. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried convicted of one of the largest financial frauds on record. Yep. And uh, obviously, we both read the book Going Infinite. Yep. Uh, Eli Lilly weight loss drug obtains approval in the U.S. and U.K. Is that yeah. with the Ozempic or Mongerno? Yeah, we'll go with the Ozempic, Mongerno. Yeah, all you know that's actually huge, huge news. We haven't talked about it on the podcast, but you know, there's even been stocks in junk food things and stuff that have been down because people say those things should be down and the stock thing should be up. I've gotten a few emails from people, especially in more than one from people in Denmark, um, because I think that. Um, Novo is a very hot stock, you know, worldwide. And so it's kind of when we talk about things that are very expensive, you know, we're not when I say like there's not as much insanity last year, there is some in like some of these drug things and in AI and, you know, um, generative AI or whatever. And in uh, semiconductor stuff related to that, those have kind of been the new narratives. You know, I don't feel like we've had a lot of things. Well, you know, it's been almost five years that we've had these constant focuses around themes, right? Like even mm -hmm. before COVID, we had it with electric vehicle things and um, um, cannabis and stuff like that. And um, then during COVID, we had the COVID benefit versus the COVID you're harmed by it things. I mean, that was remarkable looking at like, I think it was Zoom is the stock price is above where it was when it first happened. No, it's pretty close to, I mean, it's it's close to what it would have been right before. Uh, I think maybe it's doubled or something from like right before um, COVID, but it's probably not much higher than what it was within a month or so of COVID. Um, yeah, they're like, we're right where basically it was. Pfizer, well, I think, is down since COVID, even though it had COVID vaccine. You know, that was a great thing for the world, um, but it was not a great thing for the company's stock long term, as opposed to if they'd been working on weight loss drugs and stuff instead of COVID. Mm-hmm. What are your, do you have any, Dr. Jeff, Dr. Jeff, do you have any thoughts on these weight loss drugs? Ozempic yeah, I mean, Mongerno. I know some people, I, there's someone, yeah. I will say there's someone very close to me taking Mongerno and uh, started in July, beginning of July mm -hmm. and completely changed his life though and eating habits and, yeah. you know, exercising, walking down over a hundred pounds. Yeah. Um, that's over a hundred pounds since that's July. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Um, now how it works. What are the long-term effects of that? I don't know, you know, but yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm happy. I mean, completely changed his mm -hmm. life and his habits, which is probably the most important part. One of the most important parts, you know, so you don't just gain it back, whatever. But I mean, mm -hmm. it is crazy. Did, did we just cure obesity in the United States? Is this, uh, is obesity well, gone forever? It depends on if people are happy with it and with the side effects and stuff, right? And so far, it seems like they are. I mean, we've had drugs before, whether drugs that treat alcoholism, drugs that treat weight loss things. I mean, when I was a child, I didn't have a weight issue, but I did. I was prescribed a drug for um, uh, it, it was a precursor to like ADD type drugs, and I I was losing weight as a child. I couldn't keep weight on and stuff. So it's it's easy to give people drugs that will suppress their appetite to the point that they don't find food appetizing and stuff, but it has horrible side effects. And so um, obviously you don't want to do that. Uh, and these drugs so far have been great that way. Um, and we'll see if people stay on them for long time there also when they talk about the costs and all that um like people won't cut you know companies and governments and stuff won't cover this i mean if they have the benefit of actually keeping that weight off I, I don't know the cost benefit looks pretty good um now if you do give it to like eventually 50 million people or something if you look at the incidence of stomach paralysis and stuff it, it, you'll have a lot of cases because that is a side effect that for every you know however many thousand people there are meaningful cases of that and stuff so they'll start to be more coverage of some of the really bad outcomes, which is for a really small number of people. But any drug that you give, just same as like a vaccine, 99.9% .9 safe for most drugs is great. But for something that you prescribe to tens of millions of people, you'll start to hear news stories about 
terrible cases because that's still thousands of people that will have bad things happen to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and from the uh, paying standpoint, I think he pays even with insurance or whatever he still has to pay out of pocket. I mean, over a thousand dollars a month. But then you look at like what that costs in Europe and other parts of the country, and it's or other parts of the world, it's like nothing, like two hundred dollars. Yeah, and paying a thousand dollars a month to permanently take off um, that much weight and keep it off is a pretty good deal for the person and for anyone else who's exposed to their health liabilities long term. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's not good if you're doing it to like get an acting job because you want to be twenty percent underweight or something. What the healthiest thing would be, but for people who are obese. It's actually a pretty good cost benefit trade off, even if the drug's pretty expensive, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. Crazy. So, yeah, I mean, and to your point about uh, like CPG companies being concerned, who was yeah. it? Uh, oh, I can't remember. But I did see one company that was like, no, we think it's great because that means people will be willing to eat these foods more uh, because they're not going to gain weight or they'll eat more of our food. Our, crappy food on the shelf uh because uh you know they have this drug they're acting like they're not scared but i definitely think they're probably worried about it yeah um i don't know how much it'll affect those things because the the you know the, it's complicated but the profitability of it isn't necessarily as effective as much as you might think by the total amount that people are consuming um so there may be ways to go up market with some things you know if people are consuming very little of stuff, um, they may spend more on it. Um, I, I don't think that's usually the key constraint for something. I know that's always what people focus on is the total addressable market, like how many pounds of this thing are people going to eat or something. But it's more like for these food companies, what's the pressure in terms of negotiating power with the stores and how strong their brand is and whether they can charge a good price for it and everything. It's not just, oh, you know, if people are willing to eat lots of junk versus not, do we make a lot of money? You know, there's not that much seeds that gets consumed, but it's extremely profitable. Whereas you can go look at Bridgeford Foods or something and see that they probably sell a lot more stuff than seeds does by pounds, but they're not some amazing business because of it. Um, so, you know, yeah, but they got to figure things out. But uh, so I think this is more short term. People are like, oh, they'll be destocking of this and everything. And it's a way to play it this year or something in the stocks. That's kind of how strategists think about it. Yeah, sure. but I yeah. You know, one thing that's been uh, super surprising, I don't want to say surprising, but just definitely, I think something that's very true, an individual stock idea could be very powerful from like a return perspective, but a theme, I think yeah. has to be more powerful by like a multiple of like three, four, five times than an individual idea. And I think that's really because you, the, the flows of Wall Street and people getting behind it and chasing what's working or what's working recently and just the way that market dynamics are set up, like because of, um, you know, multi-managers and, and all of these different funds, these huge capital flows that really just chase what is working. And they're so concerned about next quarter and guessing mm -hmm. next quarter and just how momentum and everything works in today's markets with computers. Um, themes can be pretty powerful from a stock return perspective now you gotta i guess uh you run into the issue of when to you know hop off that theme or whatever it's a totally different investing style but i've just been consistently surprised at whether it was bitcoin ai whatever yeah. how strong these moves can literally be and it's like all rationality everything you can just throw it out the window the only thing that matters is prices going higher yeah i mean the mult uh, so much of the returns and things are the multiple expansion and contraction and I think what we've seen in the last five years, something like I was saying with these different fads or whatever, it's more than like the growth thing that we saw in 2000. Um, and it's more momentum is the thing that's really different. Uh, that that feels that's the part of this that feels similar to um, 20 some years ago is that there's a momentum aspect to it. And people do get trained to go with the things that have that momentum. Um, and then, of course, you have to get out of them because some of the ones that we talked about have really collapsed in terms of their um, stock performance, you know, but then there's something else that comes out that gets a, a people's attention to it. So um, I think that's the thing that's, that's been different. That's really true, especially for retail. Right. I think they're very attracted to themes and momentum. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting too talking about like um, just a little uh, segue here, but talking about like foods and 
uh, CPG companies and the shelf life. I mean, at our house, we make bread, homemade mm-hmm. sourdough bread, and have it pretty much every night. I would say by day two or day three, there's mold showing up yes. on it. Like it's just not good. You have to throw mm-hmm. it away. So it is interesting to think about like how long <laughs> Wonder Bread, all these other breads that you get off the shelves at supermarkets, how many preservatives and all this other crap that isn't natural or whatever is injected in there to keep these things from being edible for two, three weeks or whatever it is. I mean, what is the average mm-hmm. shelf life of? I mean, a a Twinkie. We've spoken about that before, but like, yeah. what is the average shelf life of like bread that a loaf of bread that sits on the shelf? Oh, that's a good question. So, I mean, bread is only good. You know, historically, bread was only good for one to two days. You use day old bread for something else, then you did the first one, and it was two days, and that was it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's very long for the breads that we were talking about. Um, it can sit on a shelf certainly for a week, then be bought and sit for another week without any problems. Um, it can also be stored differently. You can keep it in in plastic wrap and stuff like that, which is not a way you could ever store bread. I mean, with a bread box, you could last a little bit longer than what you just said. Like you could add a day or two to it if you, um, at least the parts that aren't exposed. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that are added to it, but that's why, you know, your grandparents or whatever thought that canned things and all these preservatives and stuff were great because you yeah. couldn't have stuff before. Remember that most people in a lot of parts of the country couldn't have fresh bread or any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, their diets were completely different because they couldn't have it. And they worried about food safety. One thing about sure. processed everything is that it's completely safe and you don't get sick from it. You know, I remember um, someone was visiting me from another country. They had not been to the United States before. And we had some like fruit out there and they were like, oh, can you eat it? Like you can just eat the grape with the skin and stuff after you've washed it. And I said, yeah, yeah, you can, it's okay. Because in their country, they spray pesticides on it. That would make you very, very ill. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the, it's a trade off that way. Obviously, we don't worry about those food safety things in this country because of that. Um, but that means that your food doesn't really reflect very natural stuff at all. Mm hmm. Do you think that has a, a correlation to like being bad for us? If you had to put the tinfoil hat on, eh. I mean, have you seen I mean, pictures of? I mean, you see pictures of, uh, you know, like uh, the beach, people on the beach, and of course they're cherry picking this. But I do really wonder, right? Like the beach in like the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, people are oh, you know slim, fit, whatever, versus yes. like today. Oh, it makes like people fat. Different. Yeah, no, no, of course. Food is much more appealing now than it ever was before because you can add all these artificial flavors to it. You can change the texture. You can do everything to make it very, very appealing. And there's also a societal change in which there's much greater acceptance of not being slim and stuff. So, I mean, there was a huge stigma with being fat in the periods that you're talking about in like 1950s or something, right? So that's also a, a difference. But yes, so if you mean getting fat and all of that, yes. Some of the other things are pushing it a little far, like... I mean, I've mentioned before ancient things. We have ancient sources on some things. There's some ancient people who ate only the healthiest, most wonderful things that you could ever imagine. The Egyptians, for instance. And we know some of them died of heart disease. So unfortunately for people, it's quite genetic and you can eat, you know, chickpeas and whatever and a vegan diet and you can still die of it. Um, So, you know. That that part is sad for people that there's not a one to one correlation for the entire society that we're talking about. Yeah. But in terms of each individual outcome, a huge part of it's genetics. Yeah. Throughout all of hundred percent. Yeah. I think it's I've thought about I'm like, it's gotta be like ninety (laughs) percent of it is genetics. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, if people are selling you that you could just eat, you know, this perfectly healthy diet and that will definitely mean that you're not at risk for some different things, no. But if your entire society switches to eating these things yes absolutely no i'll be you know um but you know until 200 years ago well a little less than that in most countries i mean everyone was malnourished you know only Mm -hmm. about 200 years ago some nordic countries the united states and stuff do people reach heights that are similar to now because there was the first time that the entire population wasn't malnourished so you know there are trade-offs you have extremely cheap extremely flavorful and extremely safe food as a result of all this process stuff so, mm-hmm. yeah, there are very bad trade-offs to that, but you also don't have people that go hungry or that have, um, you know, contaminated foods of different kinds and stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's the same as like, you know, buying Ikea furniture and putting together yourself and stuff. Is that as good as the furniture that they made custom for people and stuff? No, it's not. But everyone can afford it now. Yeah. So uh-huh. and no one could before, you know. 
It's like we should turn this into a Joe Rogan style podcast. Jeff, how were the pyramids built? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, let's see. Let's get back on track. The Mag Seven stocks add more than two hundred billion of market value in a single day. Mm-hmm. Number thirty six. Uh, U.S. aggregate bonds post their best monthly return since nineteen eighty five. Gold uh, gold closes at an all time high. That's an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Why is gold rallying? Is that because of being worried about the fiscal situation uh, with the United States, the debt, right. the uh, the rating going down? That's something that I think not a lot of people have been talking about, but that has caught my eye. Yeah, so there is one kind of worrying aspect to that, I guess. If it's is if it Costco selling at, gold, Costco is selling gold. Yeah, if the gold market's bars. as efficient as people say, theoretically, the price of gold. It's it's um quoted in dollars, so you know it should go up and down over time with the the total amount of dollars out there, basically, um, relative to the amount of gold. But other than that, what should be affecting is real interest rates. So gold has a cost to to carry it, to hold it, which is that you're giving up the real interest rate, and then there's an added cost with gold if you actually hold physical gold and stuff. That there's there's some cost, or if you hold it through a fund, there's some administrative costs and stuff. So that's fine, but. Gold is inert, so it should relate to uh, real interest rates. So when real interest rates are high, theoretically, something like gold should be low. And when real interest rates are low, gold should be high. The one interesting thing about this is the reaction in gold does suggest that what you're seeing with the Fed's predictions for the future is a decrease in real interest rates, which I think is not what the Fed is saying what they're saying really implied in the dot plot and stuff is that they're lowering interest rates in the future they're expecting to simply to um, keep it in line with the reduction you're going to see in inflation, right? So they don't think that they're lowering real interest rates. That's what they've mostly said is like, well, if inflation comes down, we have to lower interest rates because otherwise we'd be raising real interest rates. Um, Theoretically, very high real interest rates are bad for gold. I mean, that's like, if you just think about it intellectually and stuff, that's what the relationship should be, is if you think of a lot of money is going to be printed and you think that real interest rates are going to be um, low, that's good. And if you think not a lot of money is going to be printed and real interest rates are going to be high, that's bad. You know, the Fed focuses on this a lot. It's real interest rates that matter. Just because at some time in the 80s or something, interest rates were at 15% or something. Well, if inflation is at 15%, interest rates could still be not high enough. Um, so that's a big debate about what's predicted in the next year and stuff. Is this just lowering rates because inflation's coming down? And so they have to do it to keep real rates the same? Or is this actually loosening? Because only a real rate decrease is loosening. Um, so if inflation comes down and they don't lower rates, that's tightening in their view. And so we should keep that in mind. Everyone says that they're loosening, but if they don't intend to cut faster than inflation comes down, then that's not really loosening. That's just keeping it at the same rate that it is now. Yeah. Well said. Uh, 38, they had, I guess, toot their own horn. JP Morgan Private Bank releases its outlook titled After the Rate Reset, Investing Reconfigured. That was a major event. In their eyes mm-hmm. for 2023. Okay. Yep, right uh, 39. Yep. Uh, okay. Let's see. COP 28 climate talks end with a call to transition away from fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And then 40, the Federal Reserve signals rate hikes are over and cuts are on the cards. So major events in 2023. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Any uh, thoughts on major events in your eyes? How will you remember 2023, if at all, as it relates to markets? Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts? Any predictions for 2024? Anything that we can look back at a year from now and see what we got right and got wrong? Yeah, um, I think it'll be remembered for rates the same way as before. Now, you know, it's been a few years where people have all been worried about rates, but. COVID has become less of an issue that people were worried about, uh, you know, things have reopened and all of that. And so that's just like, it's sort of lapped those things. And so people aren't talking about that and the um, return to work and the, all that kind of stuff, um, the return to office and all that kind of stuff. So it's been really focused on rates and the financial parts of it now, I think more than the business aspects of what happened during COVID. So I mm-hmm. think that's the main thing. Um, and I think 2023 will probably be remembered for what happens in 2024 uh if it turned out that they were right in 2023 um Mm -hmm. or wrong you know this will be remembered more as like you know did the fed make a big mistake did the fed have a perfect landing what did they do wrong what did they do right that kind of thing um 
because this is a big pivot, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's the first big pivot that we've seen in a while. I mean, it's, you know, it's basically two years or something that they were, they were following a path. So. Mm-hmm. And what odds would you give towards over tightening, acting too soon? Um, yeah. So let's see, I, I guess I saw some polling on this, which said that the chance of a no landing, uh, the people who said the most likely outcome was a no landing or something was at like 5%. So they basically have it as like almost 50, uh, 60% or something. That'll be a soft landing. And the rest of that percentage being that it will be a, um, uh, that they'll, you'll have a recession. There's not much serious consideration of the no landing scenario, um, with inflation. And so I would put the odds of the no landing thing much higher than other people are. That, that's not the odds. They're saying what's the most likely they probably would put the odds higher. Um, so that doesn't mean that that's what we'll get, but I think that's probably much higher than people think. Um, they seem to have a healthy respect for the idea that there could still be a recession, but not such a healthy respect for the idea that there could be uh, inadequate tightening, that you know if something could happen that could cause inflation to go up again. Um, but that wouldn't be immediate, and certainly you wouldn't realize it immediately. Um, you know, But it could happen if you obviously um, cut rates too much. Um, because what would happen is if the Fed cuts rates as if they think inflation is coming down, inflation doesn't come down, what we just talked about would happen, which is that you have very insufficient real rates, right? So if you say, okay, we're bringing rates down, like we expect inflation to go down one and a half percent or something over this time period, and say it goes up one and a half percent, you've just actually cut rates by way more than you should have because you went in the wrong direction that way in terms of real rates and people will feel that. Um, so but that's the same is true if they like don't cut fast enough to match inflation. They have to kind of, you know, things could feel the same way that they do now if they're very good at matching off the declines in inflation with rate cuts. But if they don't match them very well, then you're either going to feel a lot tighter or a lot looser than they intend. Do you have any uh, interesting stock predictions or anything? I mean, similarly, you gave us Cream Break Partners, Vera Bradley, anything that you think... Uh irrespective of markets that looks pretty uh, stupid cheap right now and could work out? I'm not sure I know anything that looks stupid cheap, to be honest, right now. Um, It's a lot less. There's a lot less in the bargain bin at this time than there was a year ago. Um, And I think that's probably because of the lack of concern about a recession as compared to last year. Mm-hmm. So last year you could be wrong if you had bought Vera Bradley and then it just completely uh, collapsed there, right? Like um, and Green Brick, um, that you know um, discretionary spending and everything collapsed. Discretionary spending, c- consumer discretionary was really cheap a year ago, um, as compared to like um, more stable consumer staple stuff, uh, and that's not the case anymore. So. You know, it's easier when people go kind of too far in one direction, betting against that. Um, Magnificent Seven shorting that probably is more of like that bet this time. So if last time it was what is definitely too underpriced, what's in the bargain bin, what are people not considering is that there might not be a really bad recession in the next year or something. Um, probably what people are not considering is that the those seven leading stocks will do worse than the overall market and will do badly in, in absolute terms. That there's there's too much consensus on that and stuff. Um, that would probably be be it. Not all of them are super expensive, like you know, um, but some of them are. And there are some stocks that are crazy expensive. You know, we've mentioned FICO on this before and stuff because that was a, a stock that I owned, you know, a decade ago. Some of those things are to really remarkable um, price levels and stuff. Um, if we get a beautiful soft landing with the rates coming down, I mean, I can tell you some things that would benefit. I mean, we've talked about Carmart before. Carmart would is the biggest beneficiary of a beautiful soft landing. Right now, it has charge offs that are very high, and it has deposit rates. Uh, it has um short term borrowing rates for it that are very high. It's funding rates for itself. It, it, it's it's not a bank. It doesn't take in deposits. Um, but that combination is really really bad for it. So if you were sure of a soft landing. Um, then I guess you would like something like Carmart. Um, however, the reason why I caution on that is 
the soft landing is the middle outcome, right? Like threading the needle. If you miss in either direction with CarMart, things can be bad. If it turns out there's a recession and rates go to nothing, right? Like we talked about Hingham, right? So if Hingham, if rates go to nothing, they could have charge-offs with credit stuff, sure. I mean, it will be bad compared to their normal outcome of like no charge-offs, right? But they don't have a lot of credit risk. So a recession with rates going down to like zero instantly is good for them. CarMart, if rates go down to zero instantly, it's probably because a lot of people are defaulting on their car loans and being repossessed and stuff. So there's not a lot of outcomes where you imagine that goes to nothing. So, but if you're sure that there's going to be a soft landing, then I think something like CarMart is one of the best examples of what would be a soft landing bet. But the stock can be hurt by missing in either direction. If it turns out that things change and rates that go up even higher, you know, within a year of now, we're hearing predictions that rates will have to actually be raised at some point. That would be really bad for them. And um, the same thing. Uh, That'd be bad if, for the market. That's not probably being priced in at all. No. And the same thing if there's recession for them because they take serious credit risk, it would be bad. But if you're sure there's going to be a perfect landing, then that kind of subprime credit stuff where you borrow short, lend a bit longer, they lend like, I don't know, 40 months or something on average to really subprime customers. That is the, that's the ultimate bet on a soft landing is a, it is a short term money funded subprime lending business like that. Um, that's the one. Uh, whereas like the bank that we mentioned before, Hingham, uh, a perfect soft landing is not so great for them because theoretically a perfectly soft landing involves the longest inversion of the yield curve. Cause normally the yield curve on inverts at the moment that you go into recession, basically that's the, actually the ultimate signal of the, the recession is the on inversion. If you just think that you're about to have a recession, but you never have it, then that's actually how you get the longest in, uh, inversion. And so that's why I mentioned that with something like Hingham versus something like Frost. Something like Frost, um, people are, uh, it, it, if rates come down as fast as they're saying, then, you know, that's not, it, it, that's not terrific. Um, it's not that big a deal. I mean, they're much less sensitive to rates and stuff when rates are this high versus when they're near zero. So rates going from five to four or something doesn't affect them the way that they go from zero to one. They disclose that stuff in the 10K. Um, so it, it it's pretty, they're pretty neutral at, at like 5%. If rates go to four, if rates go to six, for a lot of banks, that won't make a difference. Um, but if rates go to zero, it makes a huge difference, right? Um, or if rates go to some very high number. Um, so yeah, I'd say probably. Um, if you had to pick the thing that's probably overvalued or, or overdone, it's that Magnificent Seven thing that we talked about. That's probably it, is short the Magnificent Seven as um, the thing that is most overdone with people. U.S. stocks, big stocks, most popular stocks, you know, we didn't talk about it, but the actual median stock return for much of this year hasn't been that great. Like if you're looking at your own portfolio, it's there's probably close to as much red as green in it but if you own indexes there's a lot more green yeah i said if you if you use the rsp which is the equally weighted um s&p 500 it's up 10 percent year to date versus yeah. the market the spx which is driven mainly by mag 7 being up 24 percent. yeah and if you get a super boom if that really happens that you get a beautiful economic outcome usually that does benefit companies that are very small more than it benefits companies that are very big. I mean, the interest rate, high short-term interest rates are more of a pain for very small companies than they are for very big. You know, Apple doesn't have to worry about talking to their bank to fund inventory for the next year and stuff. But when we talk about things like, we mentioned Jewett Cameron or something, like companies like that, though cheap and everything, are extended to a point that would concern a bank. Um, they funded a lot of their inventory and stuff. And even though Dollar General did the same thing or Walmart did the same thing at some point. No one is breathing down their necks that they're in real trouble that way, but a very, a micro cap that draws all of its credit to build up inventory. They do have people breathing down their necks when it's a tight credit environment and they don't want mm -hmm. it to lose one. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I can't think of anything else. What, what do you have that way in terms of, um, in terms of what things might be way overdone? So it's interesting. I do think Mag Seven is overdone. However, I've been doing this, you know, paying attention long enough to understand how things could 
be like I have this theory. I mean, and I, I read in a book once actually by the Santa Monica Partners guy, and he had said that he believes that the market's going to do whatever it has to do to make the most amount of people wrong. And I think there's a lot of people saying that Mag7 is overvalued, and I just think it could continue going on. But it's kind of in that bucket of I wouldn't short it, I wouldn't buy it, I just wouldn't do anything. I would just kind of stay away from it. Um, it is interesting, though, like you look at the equally weighted SP, and it's only up 10%. And the rest of, you know, the, the actual SP 500 is up 24%. Um, I don't know, it, it is it is bizarre. I think it seems pretty unhealthy, but I think you'll get rates will come down. It is an election year. Um, so who knows this time next year, who knows what we'll be talking about. We'll have a new president by that point. Right. And, um, or I think it's going to be a pretty president. crazy year. They are running for reelection. Correct. Or you could have a same president. <laughs> yeah, so. You'll have a new election. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think it's gonna, do you think it's almost orchestrated for rates to come down? I don't want to get in politics here, but you think that oh, was well, sort of no, intentional oh, or because oh, look, of the debt, how much we have to pay on that. Like, I have, this was all, a. a, a uh, like this was all planned. Like this was very, they knew they no. were going to raise it really hard and then, you know, cut no. really hard into an election year. No. Okay. no. Oh, no, no, no. I do believe that. I don't know in the minutes and stuff if they'll disclose that and, and tell that. But yes, I am sure that the Fed at the FOMC has, does understand that they themselves may be more reluctant to raise rates going into an election. What has been the biggest problem for the Fed historically? Um, in terms of their independence, has been attacks on them, personal attacks, sometimes delivered in person. Um, Truman did, Johnson did, um, not to raise rates going into an election. Um, I'm sure that George Herbert Walker Bush thought that he lost the election because of um, Fed policy and stuff, for instance. So that is a big um, issue that they would know that even though they would say publicly we'll raise rates, you know, I don't think you would raise rates 75 basis points at a time headed right into the election unless you really, really had to. Um, so they would probably prefer to get to that level just prior to the kickoff of the um, campaign, really, than to have to be doing it during it, because otherwise they know people will be tweeting about them or Xing about them. I don't know what the verb is for that. Um, and, you know, talking about them and everything. And they'll be getting letters from senators and, you know, all that stuff. Um be invited to the White House to, to sit down and chat about um, those things. So I'm sure that they would want to avoid those kinds of things. Yeah, no one's going to say, I think the Fed, you know, no, no candidates are going to say, I think the Fed should raise rates during the campaign. So th there, some might say, oh, the Fed is independent and I want to tell them what to do and stuff. I think less of that now than there used to be. I think from about Reagan through Obama, that the Fed was lucky that way, that there was a general consensus just to let the Fed do its thing. Um, and there isn't now. So there'll be some people telling them that they need to cut rates. And certainly they won't be anyone telling them that they need to raise rates. Um, yeah, but the other point that you brought up was the the ability of the, the um, government long-term to fund itself with, you know, the interest costs on top of the primary deficit. And we covered that in an earlier podcast. It's not sustainable, so they got to address it somehow. And neither party seems that interested in doing anything about it. So that's the big shift of why you don't have a AAA um, U.S. credit rating and stuff anymore. Um, yeah, I don't have any other long ideas. Um, I do similar to the Magnificent Seven one. I guess there is one other one which I would say is probably somewhat underappreciated right now. Uh, electric cars. It will not be a good year for electric cars next year. They are oversupplied and they're continuing to oversupply themselves. And it hasn't caught on with the general public in the United States or the UK. I mean, we, we saw an earnings report from Virtu and stuff that specifically singled out electric cars as a problem. And so um, they, their companies are concerned. They're, they're pulling back on production things and everything that are clear that they know they're going to oversupply them and they might have to discount them and everything. I think that's something where rates really showed people that that's a discretionary purchase, um, that if rates could be at zero or something, then people would be a lot more likely to like that. And the presence of so many more used electric cars in the market with the rates um, really does cause a bit of a problem. So I have no idea the stocks could go up while the earnings go down, 
But, you know, my thing is usually look at the inventories and everything to predict what next year is going to be. And uh, I, I would say not a good year for electric cars. That could really surprise people in terms of how bad it is. Oh, and we can also predict something which I think is pretty sure, which is that um, box office will be lousy next year. Yeah. Supply. Mm -hmm. Again, it's a supply driven thing, so it's easy to see. Uh, I think 20% down um, in terms of supply. Now, I think the box office probably won't actually be down 20% in terms of dollars and stuff because you're going to see Boy and the Heron did well. Godzilla Minus One did well. The concert films did well. Sound of Freedom did well. There's just going to be so much more stuff to put in there that isn't on the studio slates. But the slate that we've got from the big studios is abysmal. It is really, really, really bad. Some of that's driven by the strike. Some of it's driven by hangover from the streaming stuff where they put stuff on streaming instead of doing it for this. But no doubt you're going to have a terrible supply of movies from the big studios in the next year. And absent, you know, it's not a lack of demand, but it's going to be an undersupplied market. There's going to be more demand for people wanting to go out to the movies than are going to have things that when you when you um, uh, look up and, and uh, what's playing in my local movie theater, something I've actually heard of or know about, it's not going to look good. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean the stocks are bad, though, because some of these stocks haven't recovered much and are pretty cheap, obviously. I think Marcus is is very cheap. We don't own it, but Marcus yeah. Corp, I think it's it's pretty cheap. And they and also been, have exposure to real estate stuff. I've been amazed by how well the um, hotel business there for Marcus has held up. Yeah. That's something that I would have thought that the movie business would have come back more. Um, I was going to bring this up to you recently, but here we are doing it on the podcast. Being like, I mean, because just anyway, you kind of... Uh, you run the numbers. It, it looks pretty cheap. I, you do know that 2024 will probably be a bad, bad year for movie theaters. But yeah. you look out on a three-year basis, it's probably trading, uh, trading very cheap. Yeah. But that is one that I want to put out to people because that's the kind of thing. The, the electric vehicle one, I think, is getting into the news and stuff now. But it's something you can see. And I think the theater one is something people could overlook because they're going to be like, oh, well, demand must be back even more because everyone's going to want to go back the COVID stuff. I mean, that that's well in the past now. And yeah, but it's demand and it's supply. And I, I think everyone in Hollywood knows it looks awful. And I think that the theaters and stuff know that and say politely in the earnings calls about that. You know, what they say basically is, well, we're going to try to improve our metrics, even if we have, you know, on a per thing basis and stuff like maybe we can keep our earnings flat or whatever, even though the market's going to be bad, but they know they're swimming against the tide next year. And I don't know that everyone knows that, that we can see what's coming next year and it's not good. Um, so, you know, that's like in these stocks, that's something that people should be aware of. Some other people in the stocks know that, and you might not know that. So it's a good thing to mention the same as the electric vehicle thing that, look, the stocks could do great or not, but I think there's going to be a glut of electric vehicles next year. There's going to be more vehicles out there than people wanting to buy them. And I think there's going to be more people wanting to see movies than there are going to be movies to, to, um, to uh, sate their appetite, basically. So what predictions do you have for... Uh, 2024 this time i don't have any predictions i don't none. have any predictions none no no i think okay, value's no. coming back i'm gonna die right. in this hill again is the market gonna be up or down though you know what's crazy it's just like i'm like markets only go up stocks only go up nothing else matters i i think there's a much higher chance of the market being down next year than there was this year really is my guess yeah um there the it's it's all against sentiment and stuff, right? Like, what are people seeing for the next year versus that? Last year, people were gloomy, you know, as compared to this year. People are really, really optimistic considering. I mean, we're, we are recording this at a time where, like, nine of the last ten days or something, the market's up. I don't know if it's exactly that, but something incredible. The SP like 500 chart looks insane. It's just like a gap up and just boom every day. Boom every day. And that's day. Even, even been days where, like, um, there's been some Fed people who said, you know, Oh, that was quite a move up. I mean, we didn't say that much about lowering rates when they're excited about it, you know. So even on things that sometimes would get somewhat of a reaction that the Fed is saying like, oh, let's backpedal a little bit on that. We didn't mean to go quite that far. Um, the market doesn't get concerned. Whereas like a year or two ago, I think the market would be concerned if there was any hint that they said, well, the market kind of overreacted a little there. Um, yeah. So there's a lot baked in is all I'm going to say. There's a lot baked in. When you're counting on rate 
cuts as opposed last time they were counting on rate increases. They were, you know, they were saying there will be increases. Basically, we still know that's going to happen. Now they're saying they've baked in the rate cuts. Um, yeah. Big difference. Big, big difference. Yeah. So uh, don't know. Can't predict. But I would say you're the odds are this year for the overall market, 2024 versus 2023, you know, it, it could be a lot choppier because you're just coming in with much higher expectations. You know, Charlie, Charlie Munger would always say, you know, the importance of low expectations. Well, that's really important to market that that fixes everything. That's why we mentioned Vera Bradley last time. Not that anything good would happen, but the expectations were so low here. The expectations are pretty high. They're expecting a soft landing and it, it's, you know, soft landings don't normally happen. So they're expecting a really good outcome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Got it. Cool. Well, this is the last podcast of 2023. So I want to thank everybody so much for constantly tuning in with us. Uh, it's been an interesting year. And uh, I'll be one of those guys that says that on like New Year's Eve, see you next year, right? See mm -hmm. you guys next year. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I. Be sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening or watching us. We will review this podcast in 2024 at the end of it, uh, probably about one year from today. So I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in. Hopefully you have a great holiday season and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.